Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline with me, your host and honorary Big Sister, Clementine Ford. I'm a writer, a content creator, a mother, and an advocate for numerous causes. But on this podcast, I offer no words minced, straight shooting, tough love, Big Sister advice. Each week, I'm joined by a guest to help me answer your questions. And if you'd like yours to be considered, you can email it to me anonymously on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. Special shout out to everyone on Patreon whose support allows me to make a whole bunch of things, including this podcast. I love you all. Thank you so much for believing in my dreams. My guest this week is a proud Gomorrah woman and activist who last year successfully campaigned to create a database of First Nations place names in Australia. Her petition quickly became one of Change.org's most signed ever, with over 35,000 people signing. She is... Rachel McPhail. Rachel, welcome. Thanks for having me, Clem. <laughs> it's a thrill to have you here. Um, I have to apologize, not just to you, but also to listeners that obviously I'm recording this from my apartment and there's lots of construction happening outside. So you're going to be hearing some trucks beeping. Um, <laughs> just there's, there's nothing we can do about it. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Yep. I'm um, plugging away just with um, work and, and um, my campaign. So, yeah, been pretty good. We're going to talk about the campaign in just a minute, um, just for the purposes of not just thematically what we're talking about today, but I do an acknowledgement of country at the top of the episode each week. But um, just to repeat again, for my listeners that I'm recording here on beautiful Wurundjeri land, the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation, uh, where are you recording today, Rachel? So I am here on um, beautiful Wiradjuri country and today we've had an amazing sunny day today um, and there's been a lot of... Um, uh, like little green grass parrots that have been um, sitting in the tree out the front of my house today, just chattering away. So it's been a beautiful day. Yeah, it's really nice. So and yeah, I'm so I'm a Gomorrah woman and obviously a visitor to, um, you know, to Wiradjuri country. So I just would like to say, you know, that I pay my respect to the Wiradjuri um, custodians because, um, you know, they've looked after this land so beautifully um, for since time began so yeah mm. it was on Wiradjuri country that you first kind of well the, the seeds for your campaign grew or, or were first planted because you you were posting something or you were you were ordering something yeah and well I'll let you tell the story yeah, so I was just um, placing an online order because, you know, we, it was kind of at the start of, uh, you know, COVID and everyone doing a lot more online shopping, I guess you'd say. And plus, I live in a little small um, country town as well, so I do a lot of online shopping. But yeah, just added Wiradjuri country to my address that day and um, the parcel was delivered to me. So yeah. How it all started. It's um it's been a hugely successful campaign. So just just to give listeners a little bit of background, Rachel, you from that moment you thought to yourself, 
hey, why is this not standard practice for people to add country to their addresses? And also, why do we not have a database that tells people what country they're on? Because, of course, Australia or the country that, you know, the colonised country that has come to be known as Australia is made up of hundreds and hundreds of different nations. Countries and nations, And with those nations obviously come different place names. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So we ha- I guess um, it kind of, you know, became apparent that there's that real knowledge gap um, as we were kind of, you know, getting into the, um, into the campaign because, you know, people like almost um, daily I was getting messages from people kind of asking me for help to try and find the name of the, like the traditional place name of where they live or where they were sending mail to. So, um yeah, just kind of, I guess, yeah, that was a kind of a gradual realisation. Um, right at the start, I was kind of like, like, why why don't, because I like to look at things from a systemic point of view. Um, I'm studying, or I literally just finished studying social work. Um, so, and they teach us to look at like the macro perspective of, um, you know, social constructs and how they impact on um, minority groups. And so I guess I kind of just always have that kind of, I just really like looking at things from a systemic point of view. Um, and I always kind of like apply that that lens when I'm just thinking about things. And so um, as people kind of started to get on board and, and send me um, photos of their mail, of their parcels with, their, with traditional place names added, yeah, I kind of was thinking like, but like why don't why isn't that part of our addressing information in Australia like um you know that the postal system so that social construct it literally mm-hmm. um has excluded first nations people forever so like why can't we it's just a tiny little tweak let's tweak it and we can be inclusive so yeah it's such an interesting and important way to look at it because of course as you say the systemic nature of of our country's postal service so blatantly um, or, or visually from a blatant visual perspective, mm. excluding the acknowledgement of of those many hundreds of nations by virtue simply of the fact that there was not a line to put that information on, not mm. a dedicated line. And it does, you know, I say blatantly, but um, a, lo- a lot of times I think, and you would obviously have deep knowledge of this, that these systemic issues are so insidiously practiced that until you point them out, people don't, people who are not in a position to be thinking about, or rather, I should, let me rephrase that, white people whose privilege has always preceded us and, mm. and whose privilege informs every part of our lives don't think to look for those things and yeah. don't think to see those things as being important or a big deal. And that's that's where that insidious racism kind of festers yeah yeah and I think it like it really kind of it it you're so right because a lot of people have kind of said to me you know when I kind of explain about my campaign they're like oh of course like why didn't we think of that before and um you know I've been um working with a a a small working group of people um in the background um, on trying to get a project um, launched to create this database. And every single time we just always kind of ground ourselves with that question of like, but why isn't, why doesn't that exist? And then there's all of those questions that come underneath that. So, you know, there's there's all of that. It's like, colonization happened and colonization is still happening because we've got those continued um like the the ongoing effects of colonization so what happened was the um settlers colonizers whatever you like to call them came to australia they spoke to the um the our our elders that have passed and kind of asked them you know what do you call this this land um, and then they wrote it down as they heard it so they wrote it down um, 
phonetically. And so that's why there are some spelling issues as well um, in terms of like even Gomery country. So um, it's the same area of land um, is recorded as Gomeroy, Gamilaroy and Camilleroy with a K. So um, it just really depended on what person wrote it down at the time. And so um, those those um, accounts are not always accurate, and but that is what really informed Tyndale's map um, and, and that then informed the Aatsis map. So... When the AATSIS map was created in, I think it was 1994 and released in 1996, there just wasn't enough consultation with First Nations people and so it just hasn't allowed, um, you know, our elders a voice to to kind of speak their truth. And so because that is the, the most national resource that we have available at the moment, then... Um, you know that's that's contributing to that ongoing oppression because we just haven't thought as a nation um or as a country to 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 change it or to actually record the truth before now i'll just say for anyone um listening who's not familiar with that that AATSIS is the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies that's the map that was made of the um nations correct mm, yep yep that's correct um, do you think that, I mean, it seems to me that this campaign, I mean, Australia Post has come on board, I, mm. I hope enthusiastically, uh, to add, <laughs> to add these, <laughs> you're making a face. I say, I hope, but changing institutions is tough work, right? Um, yeah, but this must feel to you. And I wonder as well, if this is if it has that combination of excitement and also trepidation, that this must feel to you like the beginning of something much bigger because you've had success here but there's so much more that that needs to be done that you must feel hungry to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of, um, I really hope that that's what, this inspires. I hope that people kind of see that I'm I'm just a regular person. I'm just a normal person, and um, I've just done something really tiny. But because so many people have jumped on board with it, um, you know that it's created a big social change movement. And so, I I really hope that that then inspires other people to think about the tiny things that they could change as well. Um, and mm. so it kind of um, does inspire those, you know, changes in, in so many different ways that we haven't even thought about yet. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. And, yeah, the working group that I've been working with, we, we've said a couple of times that we feel like we're kind of on the on the precipice of this, mm. like, of this kind of change thing I guess I don't really know how to explain it yet because we really don't we're still formulating um it's very early stages but um yeah we're hoping that it will kind of like lead the way and show um how um you know consultation with First Nations people and projects being led by First Nations people should be done Mm. so that we can show you know the level of excellence that should be happening in this country. Mm. Well, and also the what is possible. Mm. I mean, that's there's something in that as, as well, isn't it? So often change is stymied or opposed by people who have the power and privilege to be able to institute that change because they um, they know it is possible to do but they don't want to do it. But they say, yeah. oh, it's just not possible. But but you've shown how actually it's very easy mm. what is it's very easy to institute change when you have that power what you have to have is the political will and the i guess um what you're experiencing and what what you have just articulated so beautifully is the lack of the lack of a need to control it so that you can step aside and allow in this case in particular, allow First Nations people to be the leaders yep. and bring that excellence and expertise. Absolutely. You talked in one of your interviews about, you know, the capacity for where 
for where this can lead to now um, beyond a database. And one of the things that you talked about was um, travel and how travel and the way that we understand you know, places, your Instagram name is places, names and addresses, but the way that we understand places should be adapted, not adapted, sorry, that's the wrong word, but should be, we should radically disrupt our notion that the names that we have of things are the correct ones because obviously mm. they're not. And um, insist, I suppose, that's what white people like me can do, right, is insist that people use the correct names and learn them. Yeah. Whilst obviously deferring to leadership and expertise. Yeah, we. I guess we really need to be careful that we are kind of always referring to elders and community leaders as the source of knowledge because, um, you know, even sometimes um, like a classic example is what's going on in Tasmania. So I guess that, and that's another whole conversation that we could really do a whole podcast on but that I'm not an expert in as well but so um just as I guess a a little bit of a brief overview from what from what I've learned from the elders there is that um there's the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre which is I guess is like kind of seen as the leader in in First Nations tourism um in Tasmania or that that knowledge for tourists um and then there's the TRACA, so Tasmanian Regional Aboriginal Community Alliance. Um, so yeah, they, I guess, um, they're opposing. They're opposing in their views. And so the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre says that um, First Nations people basically were wiped from Tasmania, or the knowledge of um, the languages and the like the places and the place names and things like that were basically kind of almost um, wiped from Tasmania. And so they've come up with um, a language called Palawakani, which from what I've been told is like a bit of a mishmash of like bits and pieces that they kind of have been able to retain from the different um, countries within Tasmania. So, um, but the elders in in TRACA, they don't agree with that. And they're saying, no, I'm from, like, I don't know all of the uh, names, but I'm from this particular um, country, um, you know, and my language is X and, um, you know, the boundaries of our region are this and, you know, we are independent of all the other, um, the the countries in this particular um, island. So, um that's, I guess, a classic example of where that that tourist centre or the or the centre that informs tourism, I guess, in Tasmania, um, is is still continuing to oppress First Nations people. So even still, we have to really be, and that's the same with the AATSIS map. We can use that as a first level guide, but you have to really dig deeper than that to make sure that that the information. Um, that you're using, whether it's the place name or whether it's um, information about the language in that area or whatever, you have to dig deep and make sure that, yes, the elders actually have informed that knowledge um, as opposed to, like, say, the local council or something like that because they could have it wrong. Mm. Mm. It's it's one of the... Um You know that, and I don't want to talk. I don't want to frame this in a way that seems um, frivolous at all, because it's the absolute opposite of what I mean. But I understand that when talking about these things, words can sometimes feel frivolous. But it's the tragic loss of. I mean, there's so much that has been stolen and taken from Aboriginal people in this country. Absolutely. But it's the tragic loss of knowledge yeah. that continues to, um, or one of the things that continues to to harm. Right. Absolutely. Yep, it definitely is. And I think um, that's probably where, for me, that kind of um, sense of urgency really comes from in terms of getting this um, database created as soon as possible because particularly with COVID, like there may be 
Well, we, we know we've lost elders in Dubbo, in the Dubbo region. Mm. So, like, you know, we're, we're really lucky that so far we've held COVID to what we have compared to other countries in the world. But there's a real possibility that we could lose a whole generation of knowledge holders. And with, with that, so much mm. knowledge will go with them. Um, so, you know, it's really important to me um to kind of um to get this up and running and and really be able to get out there and and allow the the elders and the community leaders an opportunity to record their truth like for the first time like yeah i just just for that kind of um that sovereignty of language um and just to really kind of also i feel it in um oh, how can I put this? So okay, the my I guess my motivation for doing all of this as well is is for my great great grandmother. So it's a like my personal motivation, but also that that um translates or um like spreads out, scales out to all of the elders across the country that are still alive today. Because um that then translates to the respect that we show for elders who have passed because they weren't able to use language and they weren't able to um, obviously, you know, maintain um, that sovereignty of their place names because colonizers came in and, and changed it all on them. So, um, and then did, you know, didn't allow them to, um, to practice culture and to practice ceremony and stuff in their um, significant areas. So, um, yeah, just I guess to to kind of like honor that them as well. Um, yeah, mm. that's that's kind of the the motivation for me. You make such an important point when you talk about the the impact that COVID in particular, ha- or the potential impact that COVID in particular has um, on Aboriginal communities and and that retention of knowledge. Mm. And I'm wondering if you what are your thoughts or or rather I can imagine what your thoughts are. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the co-option of language, given that we're discussing language and, and the importance of being precise and, and deferring to leadership. If you can share your thoughts on the co-option of language from white people in this country who are resisting health efforts that uh, that that resistance has like a devastating impact on Aboriginal communities while using terms like I'm a sovereign being. Mm. Yes, yeah, pretty gross. You also don't have to talk about that if you, if you, if I, I definitely don't want to put you in a position where you're like, oh, I don't want to like be plumbing my trauma. No, it's. So feel free to say, I don't want to talk about that. No, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. It kind of, um, and I mean, every person I guess is, is, um, you know, going to make their own decision. But I would just really, I would really hope that people are thinking about people other than themselves when they're making that decision. So we really need to be thinking about, you know, our vulnerable people. And and when, um, like particularly elders, and when people say, you know, but they, but they had, comorbidities anyway or they were they were old anyway that doesn't mean that it's okay for them to die because that's an ableist attitude Mm. um and it's really um yeah it's not okay so yeah but also it's like do you not know anyone who's old do you not know anyone who's got compromised immunity do you not know anyone who has underlying conditions I mean 40 percent of people and probably that number is a lot higher have some kind of comorbidity. I mean, it's such a horrible way to frame it, but if you don't know any of those people, then there's something really truly lacking in the richness of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do and you're saying that it's okay for them to die, then there's something really wrong with your soul. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, you could probably dive really deep into that and talk about, you know the dis the diff uh, the the differences in the social determinants of health as well. There's that whole conversation around closing the gap, 
and you know the fact that First Nations people um, experience poorer health outcomes because of colonization. So if mm. therefore then there's these privileged white people who are going around saying, well, you know, it's my country and my freedom and, you know, I have the right to choose if I want to be vaccinated or not. Fair enough, but you haven't, you, you clearly haven't taken into consideration like the impact of, yeah, like 250 plus years of like of devastation on the first people of this country. Like you just, and and then therefore the ongoing effects that causes people to be more vulnerable um, when there's a pandemic. Like, and mm. every, all of those um, health outcomes, like for example, diabetes, that's a result of um, flour and sugar being brought to this country that didn't exist prior to um, colonization. So, and heart conditions is the same. Like, um, I saw a documentary a few years ago and I couldn't tell you which one it was, but I know they went to, um, I'm pretty sure it was like far North Queensland and they were asking like, you know, back, you know, prior to, before white men came, like what did people die of? And the elders were saying, well, they died of like really old age or like if they got bitten by a crocodile or something, like that's, that's what killed mm. our people back then. So, um, you know, the fact that now um, the life expectancy is so so limited for First Nations people, all of that is because of the things that were brought to this country. Mm. I've just noticed looking at I record these podcasts on Squadcast for listeners out there and one of the things that Squadcast, I'm not sure if Zoom does this now, but Squadcast does it. It allows you to put your pronouns in uh, so that people can share their pronouns if they wish to do that, if it's safe for them to do that. And I notice, Rach, that you've put in yours, uh, Rach, Wiradjuri country. Um, and I haven't got that in mind, but that's something that, again, it's like noticing those little insidious things. That's something that I'm going to start doing, putting the Wiradjuri country in when I'm doing these, uh, you know, online things too. Because once you see it, I think that that's in fact how I, I've been putting my country on my post for a while now. I, I must have seen something about your campaign when it was cool. happening and I thought that's a really good idea. Um, once you see it, you sort of think, why haven't I been doing that? But yeah. also now that I know, now that I know better, I can do better. And it, it, it can be as, I'm not suggesting that, you know, I'm not suggesting that overturning over a hundred years, of, I'm not suggesting that overturning centuries of colonization and oppression is as simple as just making a few changes yeah. to your notes, but but some little things are very within our grasp to do. Absolutely. Um, before we move to the questions, I wonder if you can answer. You know, given that your your work in this campaign is around acknowledging and recognizing and respecting the country that we're on and the custodians of that country. I wonder if you can speak about what it feels like for you as a Gomorrah, as a Gomorrah woman to return to Gomorrah land and to stand on Gomorrah land. If that's not, if that's an, an appropriate question for me to ask. It's definitely appropriate. Um, for my personal journey is, um, you know, I mean, it's probably, it's possibly a common journey because of colonization. Um, but my personal journey is that I didn't grow up in culture. So I didn't know, um, until, you know, my thirties that we were first nations. So, um, it, when I go to Breeza, which is where my great, great grandmother was from. So, um, up Northwest New South Wales, um, they call it the black soil country, um, which is very, um, tempting for mining companies, which is horrible. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, it, to me, if, and I'm trying not to be kind of, um, cheesy about it, but it really does feel like, um, finding a place that you never knew existed, but where you feel perfectly yourself. And so mm. I've kind of described this 
journey for me as realizing that the first chapter of my book of life was missing. Um, and so I've been trying everything that I can um, to find those pages and fill it all in, fill in the blanks and find out what happened, um, you know, and connect with family that we should have remained connected with but we didn't um, and kind of, you know, try and, and learn as much as what is appropriate because, you know, you can't kind of just walk into a place and say, okay, so tell me all of the cultural knowledge that I should know at this point in time because that's not culturally um, safe or appropriate to do and particularly because I was a stranger rocking up on the doorstep but my family up there are so beautiful and they've welcomed us all in um, and you know have um, tried to help me connect with as much um, of my family's story as possible as well so but it's obviously an ongoing um, journey that I'll be I'll be learning for the rest of my life about. So, um, yeah, and the reason that I kind of think that it might be more common than what we think is that um, a lot of people were were removed from their country and from their culture during, like, the era that is known as the Stolen Generation era, although that's obviously still ongoing. Um, so a lot of people were removed and a lot of and, – and every Aboriginal person um, in – this country was was told that they weren't allowed to continue to practice language and culture and ceremony and things like that. So everyone was kind of forced or forced to lose that knowledge. But because of that intergenerational resilience of some of our elders, so a lot of that knowledge was retained. So which is so beautiful. And they were obviously very smart about how to, um, you know, to secretly pass on that information to. Um, or that knowledge to um, upcoming generations or, or generations that were born um, without getting caught and things like that. But, um, so, you know, it's beautiful that they were able to do that. But, yeah, so um, so for me, I guess, yeah, just, just walking on Gomorrah Country, one of the very um, first times or the, the very first time I actually was at a smoking ceremony was on Gomorrah Country um, literally across the road from a tiny little shack that my great great granny used to live or used to own um, in Breezer, and it was just so beautiful to kind of um, to be involved in the ceremony with my um, Griffin family um, on Gomory Country, listening to Gamilaroi language being spoken as well, um, mm. and then yeah, kind of have her house in the background as well, and just see the birds flying over us and stuff, and just thinking like, you know, she knows that's happening, and she'd be so happy because I think that, um, well, my view anyway is that the old people have been trying their hardest to reconnect us back to culture and help us to find our way home. So. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, um, especially, okay. you know, such personal things. Thank you so much. Rachel, should we get to the questions? Go for it. Please note my disclaimer that neither Rachel nor I are medical doctors, lawyers, or professionally trained counsellors. We're just two humans with a little thing called life experience and a deep love of Taylor Swift, which we didn't get to talk about, but perhaps we will in the questions. <laughs> Moving on, writes, the question I'm asking is one that I've been grappling with for a while and would love to hear your thoughts on any answers or experiences similar. I'm going through the process of getting over someone who broke up with me a few months ago. I was the most heartbroken I've ever been and it has been an arduous and emotionally draining process to reconfigure my life without him, not necessarily because of any dependency, but rather missing him as a person and the very deep and long friendship we shared through adolescence and into adulthood. I've definitely gotten to the point where the loss doesn't feel so all-consuming and I've learnt to begin again in my own way. However, sometimes I still miss him so much that I find myself in tears. How can this person who was once the human I was closest to just be gone and cease to be in my life? How do I deal with the remainder sorry, how do I deal with the reminders of him that seem to be everywhere and often in the unexpected? I suppose I'm asking how to get over someone and accept that they are no longer in your life. I feel stuck between two worlds. 
one where I feel like I have it all figured out and I'm moving on, and the other where I miss him and our time together so much that it hurts. Any wisdom would be welcomed with open arms. Rachel, what do you know about heartbreak? Uh, a fair, a fair amount, probably more than I would like to know. <laughs> um, you know, that's, I guess that's such a hard question to answer, isn't it? Um, well, it's one of those things where, you know, when you're heartbroken, one of the great griefs and tragedies of falling in love with someone and having it, um, I'm not going to say not work out because I think that we have a tendency to talk about, you know, and this is actually maybe where our love of Taylor Swift can come into the conversation mm-hmm. because Taylor Swift obviously is a woman who has been yeah. very sexistly, sexistly, is that a word, who has been described in a very sexist way through the course mm. of her career as having had a string of failed relationships. And mm. framing relationships as having been failures because they end is like a huge problem in the way that we kind of conceive of romance. Mm. Um, and it's particularly a problem for women, I think, who date cis men because it 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 perpetuates the idea that somehow without a romantic connection to someone and particularly to a man, that we are somehow living a life, our life is half-lived in a way. Unfulfilled. Unfulfilled. And so yeah. when we when we say goodbye to a relationship that ends, we're not we're not really equipped and we don't we haven't been given good instructions from the culture on how to grieve that relationship in a healthy way that acknowledges the pain acknowledges what we gain from it acknowledges that you know our life has moved in a different direction now and learns how to say goodbye and let go mm. and i think you're absolutely right and i think my wisdom on this is going to probably come from Taylor Swift because um, I... This is, we should say that this is one of the ways that we first connected on Instagram as yes. well as we talked. <laughs> we talk in our DMs about Taylor Swift a lot. <laughs> we really do. Um, I just... So her song, All Too Well, is obviously about oh a breakup and it's a very, very sad song. And I just remember um, it was in one of her documentaries and I can't remember which one it was maybe Reputation, the Reputation tour, maybe. Um, and she said that over time that song, which obviously she would wrote in such a place of absolute devastating heartache, um, has actually become something else to her now because of the shared experience with her um, with her fans singing it back to her. And so when she sings it now, like, so when she first wrote it and when she performed it originally, she, it was really hard for her because it was so to- connected to that person and that heartache. But now um, when she sings it and she literally hears fans screaming it back at her, <laughs> it's now become this like celebration of like solidarity mm of like people who have experienced that same heartache. And so where I'm kind of going with this is that as cliche as it may seem, but time heals mm. heartache and it, mm. and it makes you think like that, you know, like that pain can become something, it morphs into something different. And then so, for example, 10 years down the track, which is my situation you know when you think of that person or that conversation or that fight or whatever it just doesn't kind of it doesn't have that same grip on you Mm. I feel like that is so true and you know particularly the ways in which how we experience the grief I mean grief is an ever-changing thing no matter Mm. what it is that we're grieving for whether it's a relationship whether it's a friend whether it's someone we loved who we've we've lost um you know who has died perhaps, all of the ways that we experience grief are impacting and devastating in the initial sting of it. But the grief itself changes and morphs over time so that it becomes almost like a a gentle companion. It doesn't mean that you'll never, you'll always be sad about 
whatever it is that's made you grieve. And it doesn't mean that you'll get to a point where you've forgotten them entirely, like, although that can happen as well. But mm. the grief that you feel for them will be, will after a time be laced with sweetness because not only will you remember good things in a way that doesn't make you yearn for them, to have them again, but I think, I think grief can be a gentle companion in that sense because it reminds us of our capacity to love. And it mm. reminds us of, of, it reminds us of our capacity to hope. And those things end up being more important than the things that made us feel sad. But it's Absolutely. one, it's one thing as well, you know, that one of the things that's quite shocking about grief is particularly in, when it, you know, um, transpires through romance like this or through, through the loss of a romantic relationship is that sense of, um, like childish naivety that you can have shared so much of your life with one person and they could be, you know, in your mind, your person who knows everything about you or almost everything about you and who you're building a life with or who you think you're building a life with. And then all of a sudden they're just gone. And I feel like one of, one of the things that's been um, instructive to me over my adult life, you know, 20 years of dating and falling in and out of love is remembering that just because they're gone, it doesn't take away all of the things that you had, mm. but that there's something really reassuring that even the people who we feel like we, when we're in love with them, we feel like I cannot imagine my life without you, that actually we very often do get to a point where we're living our life without them and we may not have thought about them for months or for even years. Mm. And it's a reminder of our great capacity to heal as well and to move on and to and to survive what you know slings and arrows life throws our way absolutely and i think like you're so right in terms of um so i just did um field placement for uni in um the sexual assault service and one of the things that my supervisor and i spoke about a lot was like that that phenomenon where women and i guess it's like a cultural you know, it's what we're kind of like taught from little girls is that um, that the man will make you whole. They'll make mm. you a whole person and they'll fill that void. And I think that I guess maybe just from life experience, um, but I think that you kind of like come to that point where you realise that you are a whole person, like you're an amazing whole person by yourself mm. and like the person – that you find to um, to spend time with in your life, so if that's a, an intimate partner or whoever, um, they kind of they're there to kind of like complement you, like to to be complementary to the person that you are, and to help like build you up and boost you up, kind of thing. But they're not there to to make you whole. And so mm. I think maybe some of that grief comes from that feeling of like of a sense of like that something's missing which you know is so understandable if you have been with that person for such a long period of time but um yeah I think that that realization that there's nothing missing from you or you're not lesser than just because you don't have a life partner um Mm. is like so liberating Mm. oh absolutely one of the things that this little sister in particular mentions is that um, with this relationship, it was with someone who they who she'd had had a very deep and long friendship with from adolescence and into adulthood. And that can be a, yeah. a big adjustment. I mean, it's one thing getting over a relationship in your 30s, say. I mean, the the grief that you might feel for that will, will be no, I'm not saying it's less, but it will be different. There's something else when you feel like you've become an adult with another person. With a person, and yeah. Yeah. And and then leaving your life means that you really have to do a lot of figuring out exactly who it is that you are. Not just who you are mm. without them, but who you actually are. Um, you know, because so many of us I, I actually feel very lucky in lots of ways that I didn't have one of those transformative long term relationships that went through my twenties, um, you know, that lasted for ten years where I thought I'm gonna marry this person or I, I regurgitated everything that culture had fed into me from birth about like what 
kind of, you know, what my life would look like or what it should look mm-hmm. like. Um, yeah. Because it meant that I could, being predominantly single through my, through that transformative kind of, um, or that formative period of adolescence into adulthood meant that I could really establish myself without the influence of anyone else there to make me feel, as you say, like that's the whole, the entirety of who I am, me plus this other Mm. person. So without them, I must be a half person. Mm. So reminding, you know, as Rachel says, as you say, Rachel, like reminding yourself that you're, you're a whole person without this person around but you just have to re-familiarize yourself with who that person is. One of the things that I tell um, women who leave relationships potentially with, you know, the fathers of their children is how liberating and wonderful being, you know, single or as I like to call it untethered can be (laughs) and actually is, you know, that you get to live in a way that is uncompromising and that you can really kind of, figure out what it is that you like and you can challenge yourself to do new things. But in a way, like you have to get to learn, you have to learn, sorry, you have to get to know yourself again, don't you? You Mm -hmm. have to take yourself out on dates and you have to dress up for yourself and you have to, you know, ask yourself questions. What do I like? What kind of food do I like? What kind of movies do I enjoy? Because for a long time, maybe you suppressed some of those things. Absolutely. And particularly for um, the person that asked the question, you know, if they have had that person making those, I guess, group decisions, um, you know, from childhood and adolescent, mm. you know, they've they've probably got like friendship groups in common and things like that as well. So, yeah, figuring out your identity or your new or mm. – your identity that was always there but that was influenced by that other person I think is probably, mm. um, yeah, pro- probably like one of the biggest challenges. And I'm sorry to say, little sister, but the most important thing that you need is time because you're in mm. the thick of it right now and you you feel like it's a slog to get to the other side. But you're, you are doing it every day. You're putting one foot in front of the other and from two women who've been there before, trust us, the other side does appear one day. You wake up and it's mm. there and you're like, wow, I got here. I made it. I made it. Isn't it beautiful here? And in a way, you are also grateful for the difficulties that it took in getting to that point because it showed you exactly who you are and you honoured the grief that you had by walking through it. Mm. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, this one's a bit of a prickly one, Rachel, and it's. I think that you'll be in a really good position to answer it because of your um, training as a social worker. It is quite triggering, just a heads up to people, it – it touches on potential stalking. So if this is a topic that will uh, trigger anxiety in you, then, you know, maybe just skip forward the next 10 minutes to the end of the episode. Scared asks, about two weeks ago, a bunch of flowers were sent to my work for me. The message read, hope this brightens your day and makes you happy. Your well-wisher from insert their name and phone number. I didn't recognize the name at all. No idea who it was. I work at a residential facility, so no customer service and not that many people that come to the building, especially in lockdown. Most of the women at work and my mother thought it was really sweet. I was creeped out. A week later, one of the women at work managed to find out who it was when he called up to to ask about the flowers and that I hadn't reached out or contacted him. He is one of the personal carers for one of our residents. I don't remember having any conversations with this man and I've only ever seen him when I've unlocked the front door for him or seen him take the resident out. Never knew his name and would have guessed he didn't know mine before now. The resident in question never remembers my name so he couldn't have heard it from him. When my co-worker told him I had no idea who I was and that the flowers kind of scared me, he was surprised and had no idea that the flowers could potentially do that. Honestly, even if I was interested in messaging him, that would be a point against him because if you're a man with no awareness of your perceived danger or threat to women, then he's not paying attention to the world. The women at work and even my mother all think I should message him even just to chat. I'm still slightly creeped out. 
These were $63 flowers. I Googled the florist. Who sends $63 flowers to someone who is essentially a stranger? It all seems weird and creepy to me, but to no one else. So have I just watched too much true crime and am I overly paranoid or is it actually weird? Please help. It's actually weird and creepy and you are 100% correct to be scared about it and to, and to think that this is a potentially dangerous way for this person to behave, particularly given you're at work. I agree, Clem. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I really want to hear your thoughts, Rachel, because I feel like the, the one of the most offensive things about this whole scenario, and it's sort of understandable because, again, going back to the culture, this is what the culture tells us to expect from romance and to kind of find sweet is like relentless attention from men. But the women at work and her own mother even saying, oh, you should call him up, you should give him a, give him a chance. It's like he's literally stalked her at her workplace and we know from so many um, examples, one of which just happened in the last fortnight in America, um, that men who stalk women at their workplaces or at their homes can very often end up killing them. And I think as well, going back to what you said about the the culture that you grow up in, why is it expected that just because a man sends a woman flowers that she should be grateful and thankful and flattered and happy mm. and want to hook up with like that's just that sense of like like privilege and power mm-hmm. it's wild entitlement and you know yeah. when you think about the the reluctance so many men seem to have to you know actually pay for the services of a professional sex worker because they think that that somehow they shouldn't have to do that mm-hmm. and yet they feel like um and I hope I'm not butchering the way that I'm framing this so my apologies I'm not a sex worker I obviously can't speak for sex workers and I can't speak from a place of experience of being a sex worker but sex workers are professional workers it's legitimate work and it costs a lot fucking more than $63 you know this Uh. idea that somehow men are beneath paying for the services of a professional sex worker and yet they think that they can just buy a drink for a woman or buy her a bunch of flowers and she owes him something it really yeah. speaks to that deep entitlement and privilege that you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's really scary to think that um, this person has been watching her, that he has obtained her name, and that he felt like this would be a an appropriate way to approach her for a date yeah. or that or that somehow she would feel obliged to him and obviously she's swimming in the same pool as or he's swimming in the same pool as all of these women around her who are like well you should just give him a chance it's really sweet that he sent you flowers what if he's the one um yeah. i think that she should little sister if you're listening to this i think that you should report him to the organization that he works for i'm not sure if he works I, I, th- I assume that he works for a separate organization to the residential facility that you're in. I think you should report him. I think that you should uh, look, to be honest, I would, I wouldn't think it was overkill to make an official report mm. to the police about it. And I say that as someone who is increasingly becoming like anti-carceral, but more so just to have it on record that you've made this complaint because if something like this escalates, you want to have a record of incidents as having been reported. Absolutely. And particularly like you don't know if this is the first woman Mm. that he's done this to as well. So like, you know, if you report him and, you know, the police might say, I don't know if they're allowed to or not, but they might say like, you know, he's actually been, he's done this before and like this is, a red flag for us that you know potentially there could be some really dangerous stuff down the path for you so you know Mm. be careful or you know whatever they do that's such a great point and by the same token he may not have had any reports of this behavior but Mm. he may also go on to do it again and, and if there is a report of it happening um i mean firstly i should say and this is to anyone listening 
you do not owe men your time or attention or as Rachel, as you said, you don't even owe them your gratitude, particularly not if they make you feel threatened or make you feel even like uncomfortably observed in your place of work, at your home, in your leisure activities, wherever it may be. You don't owe them any kind of gratitude or thanks for them acknowledging your existence and essentially Mm. saying like, I've bought you this bunch of flowers and therefore I I feel like you owe me a date now or you owe me a conversation Mm. on the phone. You, you owe me your time. You don't owe him time at all. Um, You don't, and you shouldn't feel at all paranoid either. I mean, we're surrounded by examples constantly of men who punish women for rejecting their advances. And yet we're in this like weird um, and well, it's not weird actually. It's very understandable because this is how patriarchy works, and this is and this is how it maintains itself, um, or this is how like it it maintains its part of its control over women, is that we are instructed to accept men's attention when we don't want it, to never complain about it if we don't want it because that's seeking attention, and of course, the only kind of attention we're ever allowed to have is that that men give us without our without our permission. Um, mm. At the same time, you know, at the same time as being told always that we need to have common sense, that we need to exercise common sense when we move through the world, that we need to make good decisions, that we need to not walk at night, we need to not go through strange dark parks by ourselves, we need to not be out, we need to not be in our homes, we need to, we literally can't be anywhere where we're not at risk in some sense from men and from men's violence. Mm. And we're told that that you have to be careful all the time. And when you say, you know what, I'm being really careful because this man's making me feel uncomfortable and scared. Oh, you're bloody overreacting. You're being paranoid. He's just being nice. Most men yep. are really nice. He's not out to get you. So mm. we're operating in a system where not only are we being gaslit from the moment that we understand that our bodies are public property as women, but we're also being instructed in how to gaslight ourselves so that we end up in these scenarios where we're like, this man has made me uncomfortable. And instead of saying that is a legitimate reaction to have and the fact that I'm feeling uncomfortable means that I'm feeling uncomfortable. Instead Mm. we say, I'm probably overreacting. Why am I being paranoid? Because of course, like one of the things that we're taught to fear most is being a crazed, paranoid woman who's scared of shadows. Yep. And and like that whole that whole thing around like making you feel like you, you're second guessing your initial reaction. I don't think that a man in that situation, like the man in the situation of the status quo, mm. he would never second guess his reaction. It's us because no. of the patriarchy that we're taught that we're, we always need to question what we're doing and, and, like that kind of thing. It also, we, yeah, exactly that. It, but it also weirdly makes me think that, um, again, it's not weird. Why do I keep saying that? Except that I'm also gaslit by patriarchy. And so I we put all these little qualifiers in our speech. It makes me feel like when he says to her, I hope this brightens your day and makes you happy, your well-wisher, that, I mean, he's obviously been observing her, mm. but that, she doesn't know who he is. She's got no knowledge of this guy at all. But potentially, potentially he has like picked up a resident from this facility that she works in and in the course of her performing her job, she has smiled at him, not obviously clocking who he is or knowing or, or having any memory for him. And he's gone away and thought, oh, gosh, we've got, we've got a connection. We've got a yes. connection. And that can be, it can be innocent. It can be that he's just made a mistake. But it can also be that he's obsessive and developed an obsession over her and now has put her in the position where she is having to ask how to manage this because, mm. of course, she, of course, we all know that the risk of retaliation for even just ignoring something is there. And you don't know. Mm. I mean, women have been killed because they've rejected men's advances. Women still are killed in you know, unquantifiable numbers because they've hurt men's mm. feelings in some way. So we we can't, you know, if more men understood that this is inappropriate behaviour and that as much as I might like this person or want to, want to approach them or even have a conversation with them, the culture that we live in means that this particular behaviour is threatening to her and I 
and I will remove any risk of um, second guessing herself that she may have by not participating in that and by actually trying to, you know, maybe have a conversation in a normal manner. Uh. But instead, there's this, we come back to this entitlement that you, you mentioned, yep. you know, this is, well, this is what I want her. I want a connection. I fabricated a connection in my mind. And this is the romance story playing out now. And it's kind of like if if we see it from his from within his mind, it's kind of like he's prepaying mm. for um, a connection with her. Like I've bought you this, so therefore you owe me a date or whatever. Yeah. Why does he feel the need to pre- like what's What's wrong with him that he feels that he needs to pre-purchase it as opposed to or like pre-arrange mm. it um, mm. or make her feel like that she owes him as opposed to him just having that normal conversation? Like, mm. yeah. You know, and in my generous moments and best case scenario, this man is not um, is not going to pose a threat to this woman's life or safety. And I apologise as well to the little sister here if if I'm adding to your distress. But I do think that it's important to be really mindful that these things can lead to dangerous outcomes. So be very aware of um, and, and, you know, consider reporting him to those avenues, as I said. Don't, I wouldn't suggest engaging him in conversation on it, but, and, and mm. nor are you obliged to. But being, if I'm ge- being generous to him, I would also say that this is how patriarchy fucks up men, is that the culture, if if it tells women to seek and expect certain things, it also tells men that relentless attention and relentless pursuit and big romantic gestures is the way to kind of like shore up women, you know, as mm. opposed to seeing women as human beings and establishing a natural organic connection with them. Instead, yeah. there's countless examples of men in movies and in books doing this exact kind of elaborate shit and it working out for them. Mm. And you hear stories all the time about um, women who said yes to the big fancy um, engagement proposal because Mm. they felt like they couldn't say no, Mm. you know, because it was like, you know, he took her on a hot air balloon or whatever, like whatever, or it was in front of like a whole crowd of people. In front of, of her entire and, family, yeah. Yeah, and so it's kind of like taking that choice away from her. Well, and also in those situations, what what makes that especially kind of heinous in the age of social media is that if they're filmed and put on mm. social media and she's rejected him, she then becomes the target of like so much vicious and vile abuse from the public. Yeah. How dare she? How dare she turn him down? She could have gone on a date with him. And even to the extent that when, you know, when women have been and when girls have been murdered by men or boys because of rejecting them, um, and it's not paranoid to talk about that. It happens all the time. Um, you know, there's, there's, as I said, I mentioned the case in Florida a couple of uh, weeks ago, Mia, Marca- Mia Marcano, who's who had rejected the advances of her apartment building's maintenance worker and he let himself into her apartment using the master key and abducted her and yep. killed her. I mean, it is it is not paranoid to be afraid of the violence that men repeatedly use against women when they reject their advances. Um, mm. But th- the idea that, like, you somehow become responsible for this man's hurt feelings is mm. really insidious and really dangerous. I would, little sister, I would, as I said, report. Um, I would consider reporting it to the police. They'll probably laugh you out of there. The police are useless and, you know, full of fucking corrupt fuckers anyway. But it doesn't hurt to have something on record just in case, you know, have the just in case. Um, and explain and to your co-workers and your mother. Exactly. Explain to your co-workers and your mother that you're not obliged to respond to this man's advances when you certainly didn't seek them out in the first place and that you find it creepy. Don't let them gaslight you about it. And um, just be, I would advise you to be vigilant about your safety. In short, 
Women do not owe men their time. They don't owe men their gratitude. And they definitely don't owe them a date in exchange for a $63 bunch of flowers. Men, stop with the big romantic gestures. Women are human beings. Just talk to us. And if we don't want to talk to you, it's fine. You will survive. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. I'd like to thank Acast, who are my podcast hosts and the best people out. I'd also like to thank once again all of the people on Patreon who support me and the making of this podcast. If you would like to become one of them, you can check me out on www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. And you might consider rating and reviewing the podcast too, because it helps to put it in the path of other people who might like to listen to it. And don't forget, you can submit questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and I will treat all submissions as totally anonymous. I'm a big sister and I've got your back. My guest this week has been Rachel McPhail, who is an activist, a social worker. She's changing the country and its knowledge of First Nations place names and the importance of being able to say which country you're on, knowing the land that you're on. Rachel, it's been really incredible talking to you today. Thank you so much for being on the hotline. Have you got any closing words? I just wanted to say thank you for having me, Clem. And I really, um, I just, I feel really um, honoured, I guess, that you've asked me on here because I just, I hold you in such high regard. I just wanted to say thank you for um, for having me and allowing me to, I guess, to talk about my campaign as well. And also, I'm very proud of you for your new book coming out and good luck for the, for the launch. <laughs> you are wonderful and amazing and honestly... I feel all those things about you. It, it, I'm in such awe of the changes that you're making and the work that you're doing. And um, I feel really privileged to, to be in a time when I can learn so much from people like you and I, and I get to have conversations with you. So thank you. I'm very glad that you're in the world. <laughs> Thanks, Clem. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.